Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. We are doing the Crusades today. I have Alina with me. Alina, who have you found to come and talk to us? Uh, we have with us today uh, Helena Schrader, uh, who has her PhD from Hamburg University. She's a US diplomat, award-winning novelist, historian, written books like Codename Valkyrie, Sisters in Arms, and of course, The Holy Land in the Era of the Crusades, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome, Helena, onto our podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I think, you know what, I'm just going to kick off straight into these questions because I'm really interested to learning a little bit more about this. So your book is all about altering misconceptions of the region during this period. What would you say has been the popular view? Well, the aspects that dominate popular perceptions of the crusade are multiple, but let me just try to focus on the key ones. First, they were fragile, vulnerable, and perpetually on the brink of being either overrun or collapsing. They, they consisted of large Muslim populations oppressed by a tiny uh, a Latin leader, Frankish elite. They, we use the term Franks regardless of where people came from, this a Latin elite. And that the ruling Frankish or Latin elite were religious fanatics, hateful and intolerant of other religions, and in fact intent on you know, mass conversions or even genocide they've been accused of. And yet, because of their small numbers, you see, they were terrified to go out into the countryside and therefore they lived in walled cities on the coast. And finally, that the no- these Latin nobles were constantly squabbling among themselves. So those are sort of the big overview issues that you, that you see again and again in, in popular literature. And we shouldn't forget that these views originate not with the general public, but with actually the historians of the previous centuries. What non-historians tend to forget is that historiography itself is evolutionary. So that although the past does not change, our understanding of it does. And simply because the historians of the 18th century were closer to the 12th century, doesn't actually mean that they understood it better. Technology can alter our access to critical data about the past. Let me give you just one example, or two examples if if you allow. One is data mining that with data mining, we can take small little pieces of information and, and, and look at, at it in a way, in a new way, because all of a sudden we can, we can look at lots of pieces of data and create and see patterns that were not necessarily visible to somebody working in the 18th century and, and you know, looking at only one little record. 
The other thing that's really, really critical in historian in Crusades historiography is the result of, of archaeology. Um, there have been major archaeological surveys in, in what is now Israel in the last 20 to 30 years, which have radicalized our understanding of, of the Crusader states because they proved that the Franks actually did have massive investment in agriculture and they didn't live in the cities. They actually lived among the native population without walls. Okay, does that answer your question? I think that pretty much answers the question. I don't know. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think so. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we sort of seem to have, as like you say, a, a lack of concept of the fact that historiography is evolutionary. So whatever we have been told in the past should be our opinion of something and our perception of something. Uh, we take it as being done because the past is done. Um, and I'm in the middle of a complete breakdown on Twitter with an idiot who can't accept that Douglas Haig was on a learning curve along with everybody else in the First World War because he saw Blackadder at some point. Um, But prior to the calling of the Crusades from 1096, give us a sense of how people in the region are living, both culturally and politically. What's happening? Well, first, let's remember that the region was called the whole, that we call the Holy Land had been part of the Roman Empire for 700 years and was the heart of Christianity. Jerusalem was the holiest city in Christianity for roughly 600 600 years before it fell to the Muslims in 638. So the Muslim conquest was a dramatic break with the past. Yet what happened, I mean, what really happens is that all of a sudden this region is no longer the center of a religion, it's peripheral. The religious, cultural, and economic centers of the Muslim caliphates that ruled Jerusalem were in Cairo, they were in Baghdad, they were in Damascus. The holiest cities of Islam are Mecca and Medina, not Jerusalem. Jerusalem is nowhere mentioned in the Quran. Muhammad never physically set foot in the Holy Land. Islamic scholars in the 12th century did not think that Muhammad's night journey started in Jerusalem, something which is now commonly accepted. In the 12th century, it was not believed that Jerusalem was the starting point of Muhammad's ascent into heaven. So these, this region was politically and, and religiously insignificant. Suddenly, it became an economic backwater. The other thing, however, tragically, that despite it, although it was not central to religion or economy, religion or the economy of the Muslim states, it was in a very important, you know, crossroads. It was along the coast of the eastern Mediterranean, and therefore it became a bone of contention, a military bone of contention, between competing Sunni and Shia powers in the region. Jerusalem changed hands violently five times after the Muslim conquest and before it falls to the Crusaders. In addition, it was the site of a violent uprising by the predominantly Christian Jewish population against the tiny minority Muslim elite that controlled it. It was a, it was a revolt that was brutally put down. It was so brutal, in fact, that other Muslim powers um, actually condemned the Emir that ter- carried it out. So remember, <laughs> these the conquest of Jerusalem in 638 does not enter, you know, um, what do you say, does not start an era of of wonderful flourishing. In fact, it's a period in which the the area is increasingly declining in importance and in fact be subject to desertification. 
Um, keep in mind also that while the rulers changed hands, again, it was first the, first the, the, the Arabs come in, then the, the Fatimids come in, that's the Shia Muslims, then the Seljuks come in, the Turks come in, but the population remained Christian and Jewish for the most part. Even 450 years later, when the Crusaders arrive, the population is predominantly Christian Jewish. The Arab population is predominantly immigrant. There's been very, very little conversion, is that what they, the more recent studies show us. Now, I'm going to you know, step back for a minute. It's true that in the 450 years of Muslim do dominance in the Middle East, there was a, a cultural awakening among the Arabs. The there was a surge of creativity. It produced great works of art, literature, mathematics, astronomy. There were advances in many fields, particularly medicine. Baghdad, Cairo, Damascus, as I said, were centers of learning and education. Great mosques, palaces, fortresses, hospitals, and markets were built. And Jerusalem didn't, wasn't completely ignored. It was a provincial capital, but yeah, they built the beautiful mosque, which we know, in, you know of um, the Dome of the Rock, etc. And indeed, the 10th and the, the 9th and 10th centuries are often viewed as a golden age of Islamic culture. It did impact the region in a peripheral way. But by the end of the 11th century, that golden age was over. The Seljuks had swept in from the steppes of Asia. And although they were recent cons uh, converts to Islam, they were not Arab in culture or language. They had no great tradition of learning. And the rise of two strong Shia states, the Fatimid Caliphate in Cairo and the assassins in the mountains of Lebanon, alarmed Sunni elites about the rise of heresy. The space for theological discourse and discussion, all kinds of intellectual discussion and, and innovation shrank in the, in, the, in the 11th century. It was most negative, the impact of that changing, that sort of conservative react, reactionary period in the 11th century was most harmful to the vulnerable groups in society, namely the non-Muslims, the um, Jimmies as they're called, the Christians and the Jews and the Zoroastrians, and to women. And a history of, uh, this is, would be a topic in itself, but a history of, of women in Islam, the 11th century is where they really lose almost all of their rights and their dignity and are confined to the house. Um, and then in, another important factor just before the Crusades is that the most powerful of the Seljuk viziers who had basically held this massive Turkish empire together, dies of natural causes in 1092. And what happens is the Seljuk empire fragments into a mosaic of competing and jealously, um, <laughs> jealous princes, uh, you know, who are frequently at war with one another. So that when the crusaders arrive, they're not no longer fighting a unified, powerful, centralized state. They're already facing a fragmented, um, sort of, as they say, patchwork of states where many of the, the rulers are perfectly happy to, to ally with the crusaders against their cousins and their brothers. It's so fascinating to see it from the other side of that. Do they have any sense of what might be coming? Because as you say, like, if you look at the history of this, uh, religious fighting is not a new concept to these people, is it? No, 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 of course not. And the, the, the Christian term is not actually holy war. The, the jihad is, comes right out of, of the Quran. Um, the, the Muslims did pursue jihad, holy war, from day one. And it is defined, I mean, this may be going a little off track, but jihad can be defined as the internal struggle against sin, etc. But it has always, and certainly was in the crusader area, 
also defined as the fight against the um, other, as the non-Islamic world. In fact, Islam divides the world into two houses, the house the Da'a al-Islam, the house of Islam, and the Da'a al-Hab, which is the house of war. So that in Islamic ideology, the only way to bring peace, the only kind of peace, is to eliminate the house of war, that is to spread Islam to the entire world. And Islamic uh, um, Sharia law prohibits signing a peace treaty with a non-Muslim. Think about that, okay? On the Christian side, there was no such thing as holy war. Actually, Christ had been very pacifist and it took them until the fourth century and St. Augustine to come up with a justification for war and that was the concept of just war. And it was roughly defined as wars by legitimate authorities, never just by any, any old buddy, but only by legitimate authorities, preferably the Pope or King, um, against oppression or aggression. So St. Augustine explicitly, by the way, condemned wars of conversion, and he also condemned the use of excessive force, but the genie was out of the bottle, and of course secular Christian leaders could now had a theological excuse to go to war, at least in some circumstances. By the end of the 11th century, Western Europe had a well-established tradition of uh, fighting pagans, um, particularly the Vikings, the Saxons, obviously the Muslims in the Iberian Peninsula. And those wars were considered sanctified and the men who fought in them could you know, be sainted. So there's no longer a dichotomy in the Western tradition, the Latin tradition between being a warrior and being a holy person. By the way, that dichotomy still remained in Byzantium, but that's sort of getting, again, it's getting off our topic. Um, so these wars against pagans were well-established, were, um, but they were, they were more defensive. I mean, they tended, they were the uh, Christian fight to regain control of the Iberian Peninsula, you know, push out the Muslim occupation. They were warding off Viking attacks but they were not something like crossing 2000 miles to the other end of the world to liberate a city that had been under Muslim control for 400 years. That said, I wanna add though that Jerusalem was not, was not really alien to the Christians of the uh, 12th century because it was so, they identified so strongly with it as the place of Christ's birth, works and resurrection. So they remain the spiritual heart of Christendom but it was physically 2,000 miles away. And that made the Crusades different. I think, well, I mean, we could go into, <laughs> I could go on for a long time on this. <laughs> no, so I, so I don't worry, don't worry. So I want to know, I mean, how does control work in the Holy Lands after the First Crusade? Because it seems that it would have been harder to impose feudalism in the same war. And do we have any evidence of rulers seeking different solutions to governing? I mean, focusing on a little bit more on uh, consent than ties of loyalty and displays of power? Yeah, yeah. bear with me. There, there, there's two key factors that dictate the form of government, which is essentially, which evolves in the Holy Land. First of all, it's the tiny proportion of the population that um, the Crusaders represented in the early years. And secondly, the Christian character of the vast majority of the native population, okay? So... Only a handful, they, historians estimate only 300, roughly 300 knights, probably less than 300 knights and maybe 2000 foot soldiers remained in the Holy Land after the end of the first crusade. Most of the crusaders returned once they come. 
And while those men who remained were recognized as liberators and to the, you know, to the victor goes the spoils, they were recognized as the people who'd won control of the Holy Land by the native Christian population. So they were recognized as the, as the, as the ruling class. You know, these are, this is an age where people recognize that if you, if you, you know, if you win by the sword, you get to keep it, you know. And so the native population didn't have a problem with the, with the Latin Christians taking over the control, but those Latin Christians could not survive without the support of that large po Christian population. So they had to find a way of working with them. They couldn't simply impose something on them. And it, to keep also in mind that this, this crusade had been explicitly launched to end the oppression of the native Christians. And the crusaders had treated the Orthodox Christians as brothers all the way along, right along the route. Even when they take Antioch, they, they free the Orthodox patriarch, they carry him on their shoulders and they reinstate him. They recrown him in his cathedral. This is not, these Christians, I mean, you, you'll hear, this is one of those misconceptions that the Christians, you know, the Latin Christians oppress the, the, the native Christians, not true. They have evidence of the, of the crusaders using Orthodox Christians as their confessors. There's evidence that the churches were shared by Latin congregations and Orthodox congregations. Uh, the icons are often dedicated in Latin and in Greek. So they, 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 they reinstated the patriarchs, they reinstated the bishop, the crusaders build, they invest massively in building, rebuilding Orthodox monasteries as well as Orthodox churches and Latin churches. But both work groups worked really, really well together. And yes, there were some rivalry and squabble, squabbles between about tithes and titles between the ecclesiastical elites, but the vast majority of the secular society worked together and lived together in amazing harmony. Uh, and the, nothing testifies more to this than the fact that the vast majority of the armies of the people fighting for the crusader states against the Muslims in 200 years of warfare were natives. The foot soldiers, the garrisons, the mounted archers were native Christians, not Latin Christians, not crusaders, not Frankish knights. And they, they could only do this by not taking away from those people something you know what I'm saying can you following me the Latin they 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 won their loyalty of those locals including the Jews and the Muslims by the way largely by just leaving things the way they were so that the local economic structures weren't shattered the trade relations weren't interrupted civil government and most laws were left in place unaltered the Muslims continued to live under Sharia law the Jews could live according to their laws both Jews and Muslims could build houses of worship, something forbidden under Sharia law. You could not build a new house or a new, a new church or a new synagogue anywhere in the Muslim world. But they could, as Jews and the Muslims could under the Christian rulers, and they could practice their religions openly. Muslims could take the Friday as their day off as opposed to Sunday. They could go on the Hajj. The Farmers, and then of course, so that that's that's a religious aspect. And, and believe me, if you leave people's religion alone, most of the time you have them on your side. But the, the Crusaders went one step farther, is they also did not throw the farmers off their land. They didn't impose new regulations on the shopkeepers or restrictions. The merchants could continue to trade because the new Latin lords made use of the well-functioning bureaucracy, which had been left in place by the Byzantines. 
and taken over by the Abbasids and then taken over by the Seljuks. So things like tax collection, port fees, import and export duties, weights, measures, all the little things that make a state function, they were left in place. And they, they were left, not only did they leave the rules and the laws in place, they left the people administering them, them in place. This was particularly true in, when, when the Crusaders take the king, the Greek, or the city of, of the island of Cyprus, which had been a part of the Byzantine Empire. And it becomes a Crusader Latin state, but they left all of the Greek bureaucrats in place. <laughs> Everybody, they just left them there. And they did the same thing largely in the Holy Land. And so the, 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 these, everybody who had been a minor bureaucrat continued to be a minor bureaucrat. He wasn't threatened by the, by the Latins. And as I say, the farmer wasn't threatened because he wasn't thrown off his farm. And the merchants aren't threatened because they can still trade. And then the, what they did, the, the, the crusaders then imposed on this existing substructure and a feudal superstructure so that the members of the Latin elite, the ruling elite, who were called either burghers if they were non-nobles or the knights and nobles, had their own system of laws and courts that applied only to them. And then they had courts which dealt with conflict between the locals and the and the settlers or the feudal lords. And those, that's it's very complex. Again, it goes beyond, but it worked. The bottom line is that by leaving basically most everything in place as it was, and then adding a superstructure to deal with, with the immigrants who were Westerners, they, they created a, a very stable. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, to me, this suggests that actually the exchange of ideas... Um, definitely from the perspective of the Latins, they are open to accepting that there are ways of doing things they haven't considered that work, or is it just easy to leave things as they are? It, it was, it was, it was, it was both. Yeah. Um, they, 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 they couldn't, they were too small a minority to, to have undergone, to, and they were too practical. I try to point out that the, the some of the disputes you hear you know like you'll hear if you read church law or church history that there's disputes between the orthodox and the latin church that didn't it that couldn't have no baron of jerusalem cared less about how many you know angels were dancing on the head of a pin they were not involved they were not theocracies the crusader states were run by very practical military men and they were populated primarily by merchants and farmers 
They didn't get involved in those kinds of things. Now, in terms of the exchange with the Muslims, that's also an interesting fact because um, the Crusaders also showed an, an amazing uh, willingness and adaptability for at least for technology and um, well, artistic elements from the East. So that you see them adapting to their, their they're in a different environment, you know, they're used to Northwestern Europe and a lot of rain and suddenly they're in a desert environment. If they hadn't adapted very rapidly to local ways of, of agriculture, of course, ir massive irrigation and, and things like that, they couldn't have survived. So what are the big success stories in the region in terms of peaceful coexistence during the period? Um, are there any? Oh, yeah. I mean, the vitality of trade throughout the Crusader area is one of the most dramatic examples of peaceful coexistence. So, <clears throat> excuse me, Muslims who tra transited the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem, passing from Spain to uh, Mecca and the Hajj, left accounts of, the of how trade was going on even in the midst of military campaigns you know that there it was the trade was so lucrative between because the, the crusader states because i have to add this once it, it had been a backwater under under the under the um arab rule when the crusaders come in all of a sudden it's the heart of christendom again and there's this there's massive immigration from the west and there's huge numbers of pilgrims so they're not necessarily immigrating but tens of thousands of people visited from the west to the east there's this booming it's like it's it's religious tourism on enormous scale but not only that it's the ports of the levant are now under the control of of, of christian rulers and this island of cyprus also comes under Christian rule. And you have basically the, the Western Christian powers controlling almost all of the Mediterranean, not along the coast of Egypt. You sort of had to avoid that. But if you stuck to the north, you were you were going along to the Lacian Armenia, etc. The control of the sea of the Mediterranean had passed to Christian hands, which made it much safer for ships to travel. And therefore, all of a sudden, all of the all of the riches of the Orient, the silk, the spices, the opium, gold, you know, porcelain, all of these things that would come into, come, came from further east, from India and China and from Ethiopia, come into the, into the Levant, and there's trade going to Western Europe, and there's this huge men. Western Europe is also going through a period of economic development. It's booming. People are rich. The middle class is growing. People have a demand for these luxury goods, and they can be met from, from the lot, from the crusader stand. The Arabs profit from that because Christians are controlling the, the, the ports, but they can, as long as they, uh, there's some sort of a truce and they can move goods, they can move their goods from Arabia and, as I say, to India to the ports and make huge profits in selling them to the West. So there's, this, there's, this, there's, a, there's a symbiotic relationship which develops, particularly in the 13th century, the first half of the 13th century, between the Crusader states and their Muslim neighbors based on trade. And the Ayyubids were very, very reluctant to, to, to break it. And you, you, they didn't want, they were loath to engage in any kind of jihad because it interfered with their own income and therefore their own lifestyle. And then there's, a, there's an even more dramatic example. My favorite example, which you may be referring to if you read the book, is in, in medicine. Because although the usual assumption is that the Arab medicine was more sophisticated and the Western medicine was barbaric, that theory has been completely debunked by modern scholars who actually looked at, at the bones and the practices and the medical texts of the period. 
And they proved that Western Byzantine and Muslim medicine were all based on the same classical Greek theories and, and sources. And they actually identified many cases where med Western medical knowledge was superior to that of the Arabs and adopted by the Saracen doctors. But what was happening in the Crusader states was that highly trained and dedicated medical practitioners from all contemporary religions were in the same place. Orthodox, Latin Christians, Jews, Shia, Sunni Muslims, they all lived and worked closely together in that region. And for those without bigotry, and I think a lot, most doctors actually are more interested in, in helping their patients than worrying about um, you know, their religion, they, they were anxious to learn from one another. And so they exchanged experiences, techniques, theory, and practice. Under Frankish rule, Antioch blossomed into a major center of the for the translation and writing of medical texts, texts, as well as for the study and development of medical theory. And the evolution of medicine and hospitals in the Crusader states is almost a textbook example of how intellectual exchange between different cultures and traditions can stimulate the advancement of all of them. And if I may add a footnote to that, uh -huh. the hospital, which are one of the two, the um, hospitalis are one of the two major militant orders. They're the Knights of St. John. In their hospitals, they not only employed Jewish and Muslim doctors, they treated Jewish and Muslim patients equally. Their law, their code, their order, the, the order um, required them to, to swear an oath to help anyone regardless. That's the spirit in which medicine was being practiced in these states. I have to ask though, on the reverse side of that, what evidence yeah. do we have of stigma, xenophobia, and intolerance on either side? Well, I, I actually, <laughs> can I refer you to a source? Absolutely. Niall Christian has published with Rutledge, Muslims and Crusaders, Christianity's Wars in the Middle East in 1095, 1382, from the Islamic sources. If you want to read xenophobia and vile language insults, read the Arab sources. Now, that's not to say that the Christians didn't occasionally engage in that, but it's not very evident in the Crusader states. In other words, you are more likely to find xenophobic or um, intolerant statements in the West than um, in the Crusader states because they're living so closely. Um, and, and let me say, it, it's impossible for them to have been full of so much hatred and, and, and prejudice simply because both sides were engaged near constantly in sophisticated negotiations with one another at a political level, not to mention the training and the economic levels I've already mentioned. And they were, they were, there was a de facto willingness on both sides to treat their religious and strategic enemies with respect and tolerance, at least at the tactical level. And this resulted in the astonishing fact that the crusader states were at peace more often and longer than they were at war with the states around them. So it's also notable that while the first kingdom of Jerusalem expanded primarily by force of arms, the second kingdom, which was, well, in case people don't, First Kingdom existed from 1100 to 1187 with the battle of Hattin, Saladin takes over all of the kingdom of the city of Tyre. And then the kingdoms restored by the Third Crusade and from 1192 to 1291, it's what we call the Second Kingdom of Jerusalem, where in fact there, Jerusalem was never back in Christian hands. And it's basically the, the, the coastal area of the Levant where the capital was Accra. That kingdom expanded almost and briefly we took Jerusalem by treaty. So it expanded in the first half of the 13th century almost entirely by diplomatic means. 
And there's also many instances of temporary tactical alliances between the Crusader states, one or the other, and one or the other of the Muslim states. So the Sultan of Damascus countered his rising enemy in the north in Aleppo, Zengi, by allying himself with the king of Jerusalem. Or more tragically, the Jerusalem made an alliance with an Ayyub prince, the Ayyub prince of Damascus, which is cousin in Cairo. And the Damascene and the Frankish army is defeated by the Egyptians at the Battle of Laforbi in 1244 with devastating uh, results for the, for the Christians. So that, yeah, you, there's, I can't, you can't deny that you, I couldn't say that you will never find in any source, you know, statements, but the, the reality on the ground is that they're, they're working and they're cooperating and they're negotiating. And I think it's worth mentioning that while the era of the Crusades was a period of increased anti-Semitism and Jewish persecution in the Western Europe, the Jews in the, in the Holy Land enjoyed freedom from both. There were new synagogues were being built, and Accra became a leading center for Talmudic studies in this period, also Samaritan studies, by the way. And Jewish Jews actually immigrated to the Crusader states, Crusader states from both Europe, Western Europe, and Egypt because it was an oasis of tolerance in an otherwise hostile world or increasingly hostile, hostile world for the Jews. So crusaders are a movement with successive waves, some of those waves being larger than others. What kind of impact do these waves have on stability and relations between the Franks and the locals? Well, the impact of each crusade is different. I think, you know, I don't, I don't know how long we have, but I don't think you really want me to go through that one at a time. Um, but the point is actually that the crusades were often disruptive and destructive of the equilibrium and the stability that had been established in the Latin East. And one good example of that is, for example, the Second Crusade. It was launched after the loss of the county of the Dessa, roughly 50 years, almost half a century after the First Crusade had established the Crusader kingdoms. And it ended up by the Crusaders voting to attack Jerusalem's ally in Damascus. And the king, queen of Jerusalem, the queen, she was a ruling queen at the time. The queen of Jerusalem argued against it. The Templars and the Hospitallers argued against it. The barons of Jerusalem argued against it. But King Louis of France and the Crusaders said, no, they were going to attack Damascus. So they went and attacked Damascus, of course, broke up the, the alliance with Damascus. The Sultan of Damascus then makes friends with Jengi. And, you know, it's a disaster. It's absurd. Um, another example is the Fourth Crusade, or what we call the Fourth Crusade. It was actually condemned at the time. The Pope considered it an anti-crusade. The leaders of it were, of the, were um, excommunicated. But the Fourth Crusade had been called by the Pope and was supposed to come to the assistance of the Kingdom of Jerusalem in 1203. But the Crusaders ran out of funds when they got to the Italian port of Venice. So the Venetians suggested they could pay off their debt by uh, hiring themselves out as mercenaries in the interest of, of Venice. And Venice ends up capturing, and they, in the service of Venice, end up capturing Constantinople. That ends up, of course, diverting people, men, arms, all sorts of things to Constantinople. Whereas, you know, Jerusalem, that's not in Jerusalem's interest. So, or um, the Sixth Crusade is another great example where it, again, another one of the Crusades, we call it a crusade, the Pope also called it an anti-crusade, condemned it, excommunicated the leader. But, you know, so Frederick II Hohenstaufen comes out to the Crusader states, makes a, a sloppy uh, truce with the Arabs that leaves Jerusalem weaker than ever before, and then departs and leaves and, and what, what ensues is a civil war. So, yeah, the short, <laughs> you know, 
the objectives and the attitudes of crusaders from the West were certainly not always aligned with those of the Franks living in the crusader state. Sometimes they were, I mean, to be fair, the third crusade, of course, restored the kingdom of Jerusalem. So it's not that they were always at, at, at odds, but they were not always aligned. How do you see the situation change across successive generations? Thank you. Thank you for asking that question. Because people so often forget that things do change over 200 years. Yeah. And that, we just go, crusades, <laughs> the end. But it's a huge swathe of time. I, I still get questions, you know, in the time. Well, in the Middle Ages, what did you say? Yeah, in what part of the thousand years do you, do you want me to talk about? Um, yeah, so the first, the, it's the city situation to change. And in the first king, kingdom of Jerusalem in the early, early years, that first hundred years was characterized, as I mentioned, by substantial Christian and Jewish immigration. And they were not, when I talk about immigration, I don't mean crusaders coming and going. I mean, individuals often as they came as crusaders, they came as pilgrims, but then decided to settle in the region. And the early kings actually consciously invited settlers, including settlers from the neighboring Muslim states. So they actually were inviting other Orthodox Christians, they were increasing their Orthodox population. Um, because the region had been so seriously depopulated and neglected during in Muslim rule. And as I say, had much of the, the fertile parts of the, of the region had been lost to desertification. So the Frank, Frank started a massive investment in such things as water mills, roads, water mills, and irrigation mills to feed irrigation ditches, which enabled lands that had been um, left fallow to be brought back under cultivation. And that enabled new arriving settlers to take over new land rather than displacing natives. So when you look at the patterns, again, this is some of the things we learned from the archeology, span from the archeological studies rather than from the chronicles. You can see that the, the native population often lives in the valley and the new Latin settlements are built around on the fringes of that. So they don't displace people. They don't throw them out of their homes. They don't take them off their fields. Or they would build a Frankish castle, which would defend the entire region or serve as an administrative center. And the Latins would build their houses around the base of the castle, leaving the native population where they were in the valley. That's one, that's one thing that's going on. The other thing that's happening is that most of those settlers, at least in the early years, were men. So what did they do if they settled down? You want to start a family, you marry the natives. And back to the fact that because the natives were Christian, that was possible. Had the, had the population really been predominantly Muslim, that would not have been possible. The laws were very rigid on both sides. The Muslims obviously would have killed any Islamic woman who slept with a, with a Christian. And the Christian church at the same time required that the wife be Christian. But they, they could be Orthodox Christian. So you have this massive amount of intermarriage between the settlers, the, the Western settlers, and the native um, women. And the next generation already is speaking both languages. So that by the second, third, fourth generation, the late, not late Latin Christians often spoke Arabic and Syriac as well or better than they spoke French. And even among the feudal elites, you have scholars like William of Tyre, who's writing a history of Islam. He wrote a history of Islam based on the Muslim Arabic sources. Or you have one of the Lords of Evelyn, Baldwin the Evelyn, writing, uh, translating Arabic poetry into French. And low, lower classes were fluent because they were trading and, and, and dealing with it. And as I said, they knew their mother's language as well as their father's language. And with time, 
that's that's reinforced. You know, so the next generation, the the the, the you know the half bloods are intermarrying with themselves, or again marrying more natives, and and they're adopting the cl clothing, which is suitable to the climate. They're adopting the cuisine because they're using locally available products, ingredients, literally the spices of the Orient and exotic fruits like oranges and lemons and figs and pomegranates. And inevitably, and they're adopting, as I say, artistic um, elements. The icons became very, very popular in the region. And they, they built in stone rather than in wood because that was more common. Wood was a rarity in the, in the East. So the, the, the houses are, are are built in stone and marble and they use mosaics and features that we associate with the East and with Byzantium. And they evolved their own culture so that the, by the 13th century, the, the Franks living in the, in, the, in the East were quite different, not only in their outlook, but as I say, in, in their, their culture from the, from the Crusaders coming from the West. Thank you so much. That was so enlightening and really interesting. <laughs> I... I've been saying this a lot actually on the podcast, but I'm seriously learning a lot. Stepping back from World War II history, I'm stepping back into something completely different, totally out of the box. So thank you so much for this. And Very thank you welcome. for joining us. Thank you for this opportunity. I hope it'll inspire some people to look more into it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 